Good morning. I trust the Lord has has blessed us as we have worshipped together uh, thus far this morning. Uh, I want to begin by by reading a verse. No need to to turn there. It's a a verse tucked away in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 15, verse 40. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Let me read that again for you. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Uh, Paul and Silas are about to leave on their second missionary journey. And they are about to depart from the city of Antioch. The church gathers together and they set Paul and Silas apart to the work of the Lord. And as this text reminds us, the brothers commend, commend Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord, to the grace of the Lord. Uh, Clark and Tara The Woodalls are leaving us on Wednesday. They are departing. Uh, They are going to Russia, halfway around the world. And what we want to do this morning corporately as a church is commend them to the grace of the Lord. It isn't the least we can do. It is the most we can do. Uh, This is the greatest thing we can do for them. Uh, George Swinnick said many years ago that the strongest Christian is but a child. The strongest Christian is but a child. And as Clark and Tara go, they go as children. And so we want to commend them to the Lord, the grace of the Lord. We commend them uh, to the Lord's protection. That God, according to his own sovereign will, sovereign plans and purposes, will keep them from uh, the devil's enmity. We'll keep them from the world's hostility. Uh, We commend them to the grace of the Lord and that we commend them to God's provision. And we trust that the Lord will bring friends into the Woodall's lives in the coming year or two. We trust that he will give them bountiful resources for what lies ahead. We trust that he will give them wisdom and strength and fortitude and perseverance. We commend them to the grace of the Lord. And in so doing, we commend them, of course, to the Lord's blessing, that he would bless them as a family and prosper them, that he would commend them as a cup, that he would prosper them as a couple, that he would bless them as they, as they adapt to a new culture, as they learn a new language, as they join a new church, as they teach English, as they establish relationships As they proclaim the glory of the Lord, we seek the Lord's richest blessing upon them. And so we commend them as a local church this morning to the grace of the Lord, to our God, the most loving friend, the most able friend, and the most faithful friend. And so to that end, I'm going to ask Clark and Tara to come up this morning right here behind the pulpit. I'm going to ask the elders, too, to join us, Randy and Ike and Cody. Randy is going to lead us in prayer as we as elders, representing the local church here at Grace Community Church, lay our hands on Clark and Tara. 
symbolizing that they are an extension of us. It is a, it is a symbolic reminder to them that as they go, uh, they go representing a Grace Community Church and are accountable to Grace Community Church in the Lord. And it's a reminder to us as we send them that uh, we have a tremendous responsibility to pray for them, to encourage them as we are able. Uh, shame on us if we fail to do so. Uh, we, we join in missions this morning in sending a part of us, our local expression of the body of Christ, uh, halfway around the world on Wednesday. And uh, we want to symbolize that by laying our hands on Clark and Tara this morning, identifying with them, they identifying with us. Randy. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we commend the Woodalls to you this morning, we pray, dear God, that you would just pour your blessings out upon each one of them, upon Clark and Tara and Rebecca and Ezra. And God, we just thank you for the blessing that this precious family has been to us for so many years here. We thank you, God, for the, the love and the service and the, and the joy that you brought to us. And we certainly will miss them and by human nature, we, we regret to see them go, but we are joyful, God, in the knowledge and the confidence that they will bring that same joy and, and love and friendship and service to, to anybody they touch in their, their new home in Russia. Uh, God, we pray uh, for traveling mercies for them uh, as a pack, as they say goodbye to family and friends, and as they embark on their journey. God, it's... Uh, a long journey, and we know there are many flights to be taken, many layovers, uh, luggage concerns, all of the, the logistics, God, we just pray that it would be your will to uh, to make all that go smoothly and pray, God, that when they arrive at their destination that they would be healthy, that they would be well-rested and uh, ready to do your work. And we pray, God, that soon after their arrival they would uh, join with, with other Christians that can lift them up and in turn, God, we just pray that the Woodalls would, would lift those others up as well. God, we just pray that you would give them patience and, and humility as they blend into a, a new culture. Uh, we can only imagine the, the language differences and the food and, and all of the customs and everything that lie before them. And, God, we just uh, take comfort in the fact that, that you uh, will never put anything in front of them that you don't equip them to, to overcome. God, we just pray for physical and, and mental endurance and the, the strength, God, to persevere. And God, we just uh, pray that they would be joyful in their trials and, and any persecution that they might face. And finally, God, we pray that you would, uh, even today, begin to soften hearts for those that, that they will come into contact with. God, just prepare the, the ground that it might be fertile when they plant your seeds, that that there would be a bountiful harvest in your perfect timing. And, God, we just pray all of this in the name of uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, as you... As you are, are turning there, 
Uh, please listen to the, to the words of, a, of an anonymous author. I do not know who, who wrote this. If, if you've heard it before and you know, please, please let me know afterwards. But, but, but pay, pay close, close attention to these words. Uh, worry, W-O-R-R-Y, worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Let me read that again. Worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Let me give you five facts uh, concerning worry this morning. Uh, The first is this. Worry consumes. In other words, it eats us up. Worry consumes. When it grips us, it will not let us go. It captivates our thoughts. It overruns our emotions. In so doing, it dampens our joy, disrupts our peace, and destroys our fortitude. Its tentacles wrap themselves around our soul tightening its grip until it saps us of all strength. Secondly, worry impairs, keeps us from eating, keeps us from sleeping, it keeps us from delighting in our spouse, it keeps us from delighting pleasure from those good gifts which God has so graciously bestowed upon us. Thirdly, worry disrupts. When it has us in its clutches, let's face it, we're not much fun to be around. It disrupts the relationship between husband and wife, the relationship between parent and child, the relationship between brother and sister. On top of that, it makes us so inward looking that it renders us useless when it comes to serving others. Fourthly, worry injures. You know it. It contributes to all sorts of health problems. Five years ago, I sat down to a good supper. By the end of that supper, I was in acute pain, abdominal pain. Lasted through the night. The next morning, I went into emergency. And what did I have? An ulcer. And the cause of my ulcer, we were going through a particularly difficult period of time. I wasn't handling it well. The stress was mounting. The worry had me in its grip and it produced this, 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 had this physical impact upon me. It injures. And fifthly, worry deceives. Deceives us. It promises to resolve what troubles us. It promises to rectify what vexes us. Yet it never contributes one iota to resolving any of our problems. It doesn't give any sound advice. It doesn't contribute any deep insight. It doesn't convey any comfort or consolation. It takes all our time and produces nothing. It takes all our energy and renders nothing. It takes and takes and takes and gives absolutely nothing. In return, that's worry. Where does it come from? 
Worry arises from a lack of faith in God, doesn't it? If we are honest with ourselves, we all know it is true. Worry, anxiety, that emotion that grips the soul probably far more often than we care to publicly admit arises from a lack of faith. Listen, listen this morning to the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Oh, please, brothers and sisters, listen Listen carefully to these words. He says it in a way I I cannot say. He writes the trouble. He writes the trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. If you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you what you have been doing. I won't ask for a show of hands this morning because I'm sure everybody in this room has been in this predicament. If you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you what you have been doing. You have been going around in circles. You just go over the same old miserable details about some person or something, or some event, that is not thought. That is the absence of thought. It is a failure to think. That means that something else is controlling your thought and governing it. And it leads to that wretched, unhappy state called worry. I invite you to think with me this morning. As my fifth grade teacher used to say, I invite you to put your thinking caps on this morning. And I invite us to think through this, to to understand, to come to grips with the origin of worry, a lack of faith. And behold, as we enter into John 13 and John 14, the person, the promise, and the claim of Christ the one who is the object of our faith and the one in whom we find meaning and our soul satisfaction and delight. We're going to pick up in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 36. Let me remind you at the outset of what has already happened, going all the way back to the first verse of chapter 13. There John lays the introduction for what we call Christ's Upper Room Discourse. John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And there John mentions two introductory words, points, which are extremely important for for interpreting the Upper Room Discourse. Firstly, he tells us what Christ's purpose is. He reminds us that the hour has arrived for Christ to depart out of this world to return to his father. And in the upper room discourse, what he wants to do is prepare his disciples for his departure. And secondly, John tells us not only Christ's purpose, but Christ's audience. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His own. Those whom the father had given him before the foundation of the world. His sheep, those whom hear his his voice and respond to his voice. Those whom he foreknew before the creation, before time began. Here he is ministering to 
his own, his beloved, his people, his bride, his church. And having given that introductory word, John immediately describes a living parable. And he tells us that the Lord Jesus gets up from the table. The disciples in Christ are celebrating the Passover meal. They're already laying down at the table, partaking of the supper. In the midst of the supper, Christ gets up. He takes off his outer garments. He grabs that basin of water, which has been sitting over in the corner of the room. Everyone has been eyeing it, wondering what's going to happen. He takes it, he takes a towel, and he washes his disciples' feet. And then John presents us with the theological significance of this foot washing episode. It comes out in Christ's discussion with Peter. And there Christ tells Peter that his body is already washed. He is already clean. All that Christ must wash is Peter's feet. It points to the doctrines of regeneration. A one-time washing by God's Spirit. When the Spirit of God enters in, illuminating our darkened minds, softening our hardened hearts, liberating our our bound, imprisoned wills. That's the moment of regeneration. One-time event. But you see, there must be a continual washing, sanctification. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the priests. If you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, as those priests ministered in the tabernacle later in the temple, when they embarked on their priestly ministry, there was a one-time washing of their entire body, once only. But after that, every time they ministered in the temple, they had to wash their hands in the laver. And so there we have symbolized these great doctrines of regeneration and sanctification. And then John goes on to give us the practical significance of this foot washing. And Jesus reminds his disciples, I've just given you an example. And what you have just seen me do is what you are to do. This attitude that I have just exemplified before you is an attitude that is to be prevalent in each one of you. This humility in action. And then John introduces Judas into the scene. And Judas serves an important function. He sets a very black, darkened backdrop to the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ's glory might shine forth in ever greater brilliance. Christ's love shining forth against that backdrop of Judas' hatred. Christ's humility shining forth against that backdrop of Judas's pride. And then John brings it all to a head with the new commandment as he gets toward the end of the chapter. And we have the new commandment. We find it right there in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There's a requirement there, isn't there? It's a commandment. We are to love one another. Not just our family members. Not just our best friends. Not just people we like. Not just people we get along with. We are to love our neighbor, one another. That's the requirement. There's an example too, isn't there, right there in verse 34. What's the example? Just as I have loved you. How had he loved them? He loved them before the foundation of the world. When he chose them. When he set his eternal unchanging love upon them. He loved them when he 
lay aside his glory, took to himself humanity, human flesh, and walked among men. He loved them when he called them and ministered and served with them for three years and put up with their complaining, put up with their questions, put up with their misunderstanding, put up with their confusion, put up with their bickering, all the while demonstrating his love for them. He loved them as they gathered on this night. And that basin of water sat in the corner and any one of those disciples should have grabbed that basin of water and immediately washed the feet of Christ. Yet Christ himself gets up from the supper, takes the towel, and washes his disciples' feet. And he loved them, as we read back in the very first verse, to the end. That is, fully, completely, entirely, as he poured out his love at Calvary's cross. Just as I have loved you, there's the standard, the example, you are also to love one another. And there's a result, isn't there? Verse 35, you want to be an evangelist? Here's the best way to be an evangelist. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now we pick up the narrative in verse 36. Three disciples have something to say. Listen for them. Right at the outset, the first one, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Disciple number two, verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Disciple number three, verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so at the outset of chapter 14, the Lord Jesus utters a commandment. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why are these disciples troubled? Why are they anxious? Why are they perplexed? 
Why do they find themselves in the grip of worry? Perhaps it's because Christ has just washed their feet. They've just gone through a terrible ordeal. They really have. They were all lying down there at the supper. Each of them obstinate. I am not getting up from my place. I am not going over there to grab that basin of water. I'm not going to wash anyone's feet. Suddenly, to their dismay, the Lord Jesus gets up, goes over to the corner, grabs the basin of water, washes their feet. I dare say these men feel downright silly. Don't you think? How embarrassed they must feel. Our teacher, our Lord, the Son of God, the one who calmed the sea, the one who cast out the demon, the one who has performed numerous miracles and signs, just washed by feet. I think that might be part of the cause of their trouble, their worry, their anxiety. Perhaps they're troubled because Christ has uttered some difficult statements. In his discourse with Peter, Peter is is stubborn. Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet. Well, I must wash your feet or you no share with me. Okay, not just my feet, but my head, my complete body, Lord. And, and then the Lord Jesus says, what I do now to you, Peter, you do not understand, but you will understand later. And I don't doubt for a moment that these disciples are now sort of sitting around, standing around, looking at each other. What has just happened? What does it mean? What is the significance? You don't understand it now. You will understand it. At, you're right. I don't understand it. I don't get what's just transpired. I'm confused and perplexed by it all. Perhaps it's because Christ has just identified Judas as a traitor. Christ has just dipped the bread, just passed it to Judas, having informed John that the one to whom I give that dipped bread will betray me. The whispers have echoed through the room. The cat is now out of the bag. Everyone knows who is going to betray Christ. Judas has left. Well, these men are troubled. I've known Judas for three years. You know, when you sent us out two by two, I went with Judas. I heard Judas preach. I've got to know, know Judas very, very well. And uh, I enjoyed his company. And now you're telling us that Judas is a traitor, that Judas is going to betray you. Oh, the perplexity that must have gripped their minds and hearts as they as they pondered the betrayal of this friend and the significance and what it would mean for Christ and his ministry, what it would mean for them. Perhaps it's because Christ has just predicted that Peter will deny him. Peter will what? You know, I was kind of hoping Peter would wash my feet. I would really like to have seen that. But, but the idea that Peter will, will, will deny the Lord, no, that I cannot stomach. I look up to Peter. I feel secure when Peter's around. Peter's, Peter's one of our leaders. Uh, Peter, Peter, he's a little outspoken, a little rough around the edges. But uh, I feel more secure when Peter's around. I look up to Peter. I enjoy his company. What do you mean? Peter will deny you if Peter can deny you. What does that mean about me? What am I capable of? And undoubtedly, they were troubled as they pondered the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but far eclipsing all of these. And I don't, don't, don't doubt that elements of these might be present in Christ's commandment in the first verse of chapter 14. But far eclipsing these. The disciples are troubled primarily for one reason, one reason alone. Jesus is going away. 
He has said it over and over again. He has declared it. He has warned them. He has set the stage. I have come from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. He's going away. And as a result, the disciples are troubled. Peter is troubled. Right back to verse 36. Lord, where are you going? The question goes back to verse 33. It arises out of verse 33 where Christ says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Peter naturally jumps at that, asks a question, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus doesn't tell him. He simply repeats what he has already said in verse 33, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And so Peter isn't satisfied with that, throws out another question, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Here's what I'm prepared to do. I will lay down my life for you. And here the Lord Jesus rebukes Peter in no uncertain terms. Will you lay down your life for me? In other words, really, really, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And now... At the outset, the chapter break is most unfortunate because it breaks up the thought flow, doesn't it? Now, in verse 1, the Lord Jesus returns to Peter's original question, Lord, where are you going? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here's the answer to your question, Peter. Four truths. Four truths. The first in verse 2. In my Father's house are many Rooms. I know in some translations we read about mansions, don't we? And that figure has produced some distorted hymnology. I hope I can say that without offending anybody. The word isn't mansion. We're not, we're not going to have a mansion in heaven. I hope everybody's clear on that. The idea is of a dwelling place. That in heaven there is, there is plenty of room. There is a dwelling place. Back in John chapter 2. There the Lord Jesus referred to the physical temple as his father's house. Well, just as the physical temple had many chambers and rooms attached to it, so too in heaven there is plenty of room. The Lord Jesus is assuring his disciples that there is a place for them in heaven seeking to calm their hearts. That's the first truth. In my father's house are many rooms. Second truth is this. If it were not so, would I have told you? That I go to prepare a place for you. I am going there. And the reason I am going there is to prepare a place for you. And we know, do we not, that the Lord Jesus prepares that place by way of the cross. And at Calvary's cross, the sin of his people is imputed to him in full. And he becomes sin. He becomes a curse for his people. And the judgment, the wrath of God falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That as his people turn to him in faith and repentance, they find forgiveness of their sins. But you see, Christ's work doesn't end at the cross. That is only half of his work. Did you realize that? He was buried. He rose again. 
He ascended on high where he now appears for us in the very presence of God. He doesn't plead to his father, oh, please let them in. There's no pleading. Christ's physical presence with the father guarantees that there is a place in heaven for all his people. Because the Father receives, the Father welcomes His people in His beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second truth. Yes, I'm going away, but here's why I'm going away. It is to prepare a place for you. The third truth, verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here it is. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Christ in these chapters speaks of coming again, he means it in at least three, possibly four senses. Uh, In one sense, the Lord Jesus comes again at his resurrection, does he not? He departs at Calvary's cross, comes again by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, appearing to the disciples. In a second sense, the Lord Jesus comes again at the day of Pentecost, does he not? He ascends on high, and from the throne of God, he sends forth the Spirit of God, and he comes in the Spirit of God, residing in the hearts of all those who belong to him. That's a coming. In a third sense, he comes when we die, do we not? Does he not? He comes for his own. He comes and he receives and welcomes his own at the, at, as death tolls and as we depart from this world and as our souls ascend, we are received and welcomed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But in a fourth sense, and this is what is primarily viewed here in this verse, he is coming again. He will return. The second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Christ, Christ declares these three great truths. And then he adds a fourth in the fourth verse. And you know, here it is, you know the way to where I am going. He's already made it abundantly clear that he is the way. He is going to the Father. He is going to heaven. He's going to prepare the way by the cross. He's going to guarantee their place in heaven merely by his presence there. He is going to come again and they know it. They know the way. They know that the way is through faith in him. But Thomas is troubled. Thomas doesn't quite get it, does he? Verse five. Lord. No, 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 Lord. If I might just add a few no's there. We do not know where you are going. No, it's not so it's not so clear to us, Lord. This is we're troubled. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And here we have a tremendous declaration. Verse six. I am the way, the way to heaven, the way to the father is standing before you. I am the way. And here's why I am the way. It is because I am the truth. I am the embodiment of truth. I am the revealer of God, the eternal word of God. And here also is why I am the way. It is because I am the life. All who desire physical life 
All who desire spiritual life, all who desire resurrection life, all who desire fellowship with, the God, with God himself will find it in me and in me alone. He backs it up as he continues on in verse 6. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, you ask, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas, the way is standing right in front of you. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. But Philip is troubled. Philip now steps to the forefront. And he says, verse 8, Lord, show us the father. Give us a theophany. That's what he wants. You know, something akin to what Moses saw in the wilderness, the burning bush. Give us something like that. Uh, Show us something fantastic, something marvelous. Show us the father. And it is enough for us. Oh, the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the long suffering of our Savior. Verse 9, he said to him, have I been with you so long? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? I mean, those who claim that Christ never, those who say that Christ never claimed to be God. I I just have little time for those individuals. I, I don't, I don't understand what you do with this verse, hundreds of other verses Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, 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 how can you say, show us the Father? He who sees me sees the Father. He who receives me receives the Father. He who believes in me believes in the Father. He who rejects me rejects the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He is emphasizing in no uncertain terms, no, nothing confusing about it, that He is God. As we read in John chapter 1, back at the beginning of the book, Christ is the Word. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The term Word denotes speech. Right now, I am speaking to you. As I speak, I use words. My words convey my thoughts. My words reveal my emotions. You are, through my words, catching a glimpse into my soul. Christ is the Word of God, meaning He is the revealer of God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him know. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that Christ is the image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And as the term word denotes speech, the term image denotes likeness. And so if you take out a penny, I had to confirm this yesterday, admitting my ignorance, as you take out a penny, you'll find Abraham Lincoln's image engraved on that penny. That penny, that image conveys Abraham Lincoln's likeness. But Abraham Lincoln is not in that image. Abraham Lincoln is dead and buried. But in Scripture, when the authors speak of Christ as the image of God, they are not merely suggesting that Christ reflects God's likeness, but that Christ is the image of God because the essence of God is in Christ. As Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1, for in him, 
In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not only is he the word, not only is he the image. Christ is the son, according to Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The term word denotes speech. The term image conveys likeness. And the term son points to essence. I am the son of William Yule, meaning I am his son by generation, by propagation. I am a son of Adam, meaning I am Adam's son by nature. And when we hear that Christ is the son of God, Scripture does not mean that Christ is God's son by generation, as if there were a point in time when God actually beget begot the Son of God into existence. No, Christ is God's Son by nature. And so we continue, as we continue on in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Oh, Philip, poor Philip, perplexed Philip, troubled Philip, Thomas and Peter too. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Here's what you're to do. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he backs it up by making that tremendous promise. I am going away to prepare a place for you. He backs it up by making that wonderful claim. I am the way and the truth and the life. And he backs it up by pointing to his own person, that he who has seen me has seen the Father, for I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, four lessons I want us to take from all of that this morning. Four lessons. The fourth is the most important. It will take us right back to the introduction and and worry and anxiety and perplexity and those things that assail us. But three other important lessons to begin with this morning. The first is this. The peril, oh friends, the peril of misplaced interest or what we might call curiosity. Go all the way back to verse verse 36 where Peter asks his question. Lord, where are you going? I suggest to you that if Peter should have been asking any question at this point, this isn't the one. Peter has just witnessed the Lord Jesus wash his feet and the feet of the other disciples. Peter has just heard the Lord Jesus utter the new commandment. You are to love one another just as I have loved you. Peter ignores what Christ has said. He ignores what Christ has done. And Peter is more interested, more concerned in the curious. Where are you going? And how like Peter we are. How like Peter I am. How often do we become distracted with the curious rather than taking to heart the obvious? Oh, the number of believers who spend time and get lost in idle speculation, all the while ignoring God's command to be holy. Oh, the number of Christians who will spend countless hours coming up with fanciful end-time paradigms. All the while ignoring Christ's command to love one another. 
Oh, the believers who will get distracted by this and distracted by that. Go off on this tangent and that tangent and just live and revel in speculation. While they just ignore the obvious. God's desire for us is that we be like Christ and grow in holiness and grow in godliness. Oh, brothers and sisters, the danger, the peril of misplaced interest. The question Peter should have been asking is this. Lord, how can I be more humble? Lord, how can I love like that? Lord, how can you help me do that? Rather than be caught up in idle speculation. That's the first lesson. Second lesson is this. Oh, the peril of misplaced confidence. I don't want to pick on Peter, but he is somewhat of a sitting target this morning. Oh, the peril of misplaced confidence. So Peter, he asks that question, Lord, where are you going? Christ reminds him in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter is insistent, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Here's what I'm going to do. I will lay down my life for you. And as we go to Matthew's gospel and, and, and his record, his account of this same event and of Peter's bold declaration, we discover that Peter said a little more than this. That as Peter has this exchange with the Lord Jesus, he actually says all these standing up in the audience of all those other disciples, all these may deny you, may flee from you, but me, I will never deny you. Oh, the danger of misplaced confidence. We try to serve in the strength of our own flesh at times, don't we? Try to, try to battle with temptation in the strength of our own flesh. We try to deal with trials and tribulations in the strength of our own flesh. Refusing to understand who exactly we are. Refusing to take to heart Christ's own words. Apart from me, guess what? You can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, the peril of misplaced confidence. The fourth lesson is this, the importance of correction. So we hear Peter cry, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What has the Lord Jesus just taught in John chapter 13 through his living parable? The importance of humility. What is the first thing Peter does in light of that great life lesson which Christ has just given to the disciples? Manifests his pride. Friends, brothers and sisters, we either learn through the instruction of God's word to obey Christ's commands or he will teach us in other way. Peter refuses to learn humility as Christ puts it so clearly on display for him to see. As Peter hears it so, so, so wonderfully explained in the new commandment, you are to love one another as I have loved you. Peter doesn't get it. Peter doesn't learn it. But he is going to learn it. Oh, Peter, you've just made an outlandish claim. Here's what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows, you're going to learn humility. You will have denied me three times. And then Peter will come face to face to who he, with who he is, won't he? 
He will come to a clear understanding of what he is and that apart from Christ, he can do nothing. Oh, the importance of correction, friends. I submit to you this morning, Peter would never have been the man he was. Peter would never have been the shepherd of the church he became apart from Christ's correction. And the fourth lesson takes us all the way back to the introduction. The importance of faith in dealing with worry. These disciples are troubled. They are perplexed. They are, dare I say, outside of themselves. And how often we find ourselves in precisely the same predicament. And yet the words of Christ are as pertinent to us today as in the day he spoke them to his disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. Meaning what? We are the ones who let our hearts be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. How do I do that? Believe in God. Believe also in me. The certainty of Christ's promise. He has prepared a place for us and he is coming again. The certainty of Christ's claim. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And the certainty of Christ's person. He is God himself. Richard Baxter wrote many years ago as he reflected on these verses. I trust it will be of some encouragement to you this morning. Christian. Christian, believe this. And think Think, think on it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of that love which was from everlasting. And that love which will extend to everlasting. Of that love which brought the Son of God from heaven to earth. From earth to the cross. From the cross to the grave. From the grave to glory. That love which was weary. Hungry. Tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spit upon, crucified, pierced, which did fast, pray, teach, heal, weep, sweat, bleed, die. O Christian, that love will eternally embrace you. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. As Hudson Taylor put it, and with this I will conclude this morning, not not a great faith we need, but faith in a great God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we do trust that you have been well pleased with what you have heard this morning. As your word has been opened, as it has been read, as it has been explained, as it has been applied. We trust that now you would send forth your spirit, granting us understanding the willingness to apply it and to live by it according to it. And we do pray, our Father, that you may impart grace to us this day that we might truly behold the glory of Christ in all his fullness. And may our hearts be quieted. May we know that peace which passes understanding. And may we know that joy which is not rooted in circumstance, but rooted in fellowship with you. We do pray this and ask it in the beloved name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.